Topher, you have to slay the dragon to be the hero. Not easy to do, but at least you know what you're dealing with. Dragons are easy to spot. They live in caves, have large leathery wings and smoke seeping out of their nostrils. They cool their hot bellies on rolling waves of hoarded gold. They might as well have a sign that says, slay me, dangling from, from their necks. But there are no such things as dragons. It's never that clear cut. Sometimes the, the thing you're fighting against is hiding from you. It's tucked away, buried deep where you can't see it. In fact, for a long time, you might not even know it's there. Maybe when it starts, it's just this tiny thing you don't even notice. Maybe you mistake it for something else, or you ignore it. But when it starts to grow, and before you know it, it's stalking you. Before you know it, it has you cornered. Maybe it's a secret that you're afraid to share because you don't know what other people will think of you, especially your friends. Or maybe it's a sister that you're constantly compared to who seems way better than you in every way, even though she has pretty much the same problems you do. Or maybe it's just a feeling, a nagging hole, a sense that nobody really understands or appreciates you, a sense that you don't really matter. That is, until you find your teacher digging through the bin one day and and see the treasures buried in her bottom drawer. Of course, sometimes it really is a dragon, or at least it's a monster, determined to destroy you or someone you care about from the inside out, and you know it's there. You just have no idea how to stop it. I know what I'm going to say when I open the door. I figured it out on the walkover. I mean, there were a lot of options, but what I've got is killer. We stand outside room 428 and Bran knocks softly. I think about the sketch still stashed in my backpack. I should have folded it up and put it inside my pocket, made it easier to get to, but today's one of those shoulda kind of days. There will still be time to give it to her. A voice tells us to come in, and Brand opens the door. Someone looks over at me from the bed. It's not Miss Bixby. Miss Bixby has light brown hair with a stripe of pink in her bangs like strawberry syrup. Miss Bixby has green eyes, bright green eyes, that make you think she's half cat. Miss Bixby wears bright sweaters and boots that reach up to her knees, and dangly earrings that look like she made them herself. The woman in the bed has no hair. The woman in the bed, just staring at us with her mouth hanging open, sallow-cheeked and pale, is not Miss Bixby. And for a moment, I think we've got the wrong room. That for the first time in his life, Steve actually remembered something wrong. But then the woman props herself up on her elbows and gives me an inquisitive smile, A, don't I know you from somewhere, smile. I take a step into the room, clear my throat, and deliver my line. I'm Luke Skywalker, I say. I'm here to rescue you. Beside me, Bran's mouth opens and closes silently. And the the woman in the bed answers, aren't you a little short for a stormtrooper? That's when I know it's her. I brought some friends, I say, stepping aside so Bran and Steve can squeeze by. Steve waves sheepishly. Bran doesn't say anything, but he and Miss B exchange a look. It doesn't last long, maybe half a second. Miss B scoops up even farther in her bed. Wow, she says. What is what she says, both when she's impressed with your work and when you've done something all wrong? I guess this could go either way. Her voice is raspy, faltering. What are you three doing here? She looks up at the school clock by the television. 
It's 1.30 in the afternoon on a school day. She punctuates the school, but she's not really mad. You can see it in her dark-rimmed eyes. It's not an accusation, more of curiosity. But I can tell she really didn't see this coming. We have the element of surprise. We heard you were leaving, Bran says finally, like skipping town, and we didn't get a chance to say goodbye. Today's your last day, Steve adds. Miss Bixby makes a little sound, like she's got something caught in her throat. At school, he means, I add, giving Steve a kick in the shin. Right, Miss, B- Miss Bixby whispers. The party. So sorry about that. She looks past us down the hall. You didn't all come, did you? She asks nervously, leaning up on her elbows, looking for the other 20 or so students. Just the three of us, I say. We got you these. I hand her the bag of french fries that I was forbidden by Nurse Georgia to share. But on the list of things I've already done today, feeding greasy french fries to a cancer patient seems like a mild offense. Miss Bixby questions us with her eyes, then reaches for the bag and opens it cautiously, as if she expects a trick, a dead mouse or a springing coil snake. I've fallen for those same tricks before, when Brand first became friends with us, but I learned his tricks. She looks confused at first. Then she puts a trembling hand to her mouth. There are bandages all over her arms. Oh my God, she says. Because of what I said that time? About... She doesn't finish the thought. Are they all right? Steve asks. They're McDonald's. Miss Bixby grins. Are you kidding? I haven't had these in months. She presses her face into the bag and takes three giant whiffs, like she's hyperventilating. Maybe she is. French fries are truly one of mankind's greatest inventions. There's more, I say. We got everything, or almost everything, or some version of everything, but we can't do it here. Everything? Miss Bixby closes the bag and stares at me. I try to look straight at her, but it's hard. She looks so different, especially without the hair. I expected her to look different. At least I knew there was a possibility, but I wasn't prepared for how fragile she would be. She barely moves. At school, she can't keep still. I'm not used to seeing her just lie there. Can't do what here? What are you talking about? You just have to trust us, I tell her. There's a place we can go. It's just outside, maybe a block away, but we have to get you out of here. I look over to Brand for confirmation, but he's busy staring out Miss Bixby's window as if he can't look at her either. Steve nods at least, backing me up. There's not enough square feet to even lay out a blanket in here, he says. Steve's idea of an explanation. From her bed, Miss Bixby starts shaking her head. Her eyes are swollen like Steve's bottom lip. I'm not sure if she totally gets it or not, but I can tell she's catching on. Oh, my... Boys, this is so, it's really very sweet, she says, but I, I just can't leave. I'm sorry, they won't. I'm not, see, I'm scheduled for a treatment and just look at how I'm dressed. She points to the blue hospital gown that peeks out from the covers. I'm really supposed to stay here. She looks at us pleadingly, but I'm not about to give up. I'm about to tell her about the cheesecake when Bran turns from the window. Atticus Finch, he says. What? I say, looking at him strangely. The words are completely meaningless to me, but they seem to spark something in Miss Miss Bixby. Brand is looking right at her now. 
He looks almost a little angry, as if he's challenging her. You read it? She asks. Bran nods. Miss Bixby turns to Steve and me. And you three skipped school and came all the way out here just to tell me goodbye? It was Bran's idea, Steve says, almost defensively, probably thinking he's about to get in trouble. That's not even the half of it, I tell her. But we can't do it here, not the way it's supposed to. At least let us get this part right. Miss Bixby looks down at her bag of fries. Then she cranes her neck to see past the three of us and out the door again. I can see the sparkle come back into her eyes just for a moment. All right, she says. Meet me by the elevators in five. We stand outside the elevators, backs pressed against our packs, packs pressed against the wall. Steve is probably crushing what's left of the white chocolate raspberry heaven, but I'm guessing it can't really look any worse at this point. I'm staring at a poster urging me to eat healthy with a stupid picture of a kid smiling over a plate of broccoli like it's a bowl of Lucky Charms. Behind the desk, Nurse Georgia is occupied with her phone and computer, frantically switching from one to the other, which is good because it means she's ignoring us. She doesn't look like like a Georgia. She looks more like a Helga or a Svetlana, like someone out of something out of Norse mythology, broad-shouldered and brick-chinned with plaited blonde hair, like she should be guarding the bridge to Valhalla. Thor would completely dig her. Atticus Finch, is that some kind of a bird? Steve whispers. He doesn't want to draw any of Nurse George's attention. It's a character, Brand whispers back, from a book written like 50 years ago. Is he a superhero or something? I ask. It sounds like the name of a superhero, or his secret identity. Anyway, mild-mannered reporter Atticus Finch? Obviously, it's a decent book, or Miss Bixby wouldn't have told Brand to read it, but having superheroes would be a bonus. He's a lawyer, Brand says, but the book's not really about him. Then what's it about? It's about standing up for what's right, I guess. Oh, I say, is there any sword fighting in it? Brand shakes his head. He's not doing a great job selling it, but I'll make it a point to read it someday anyhow, even without the sword fighting. Behind the desk, Nurse Georgia groans and taps frantically on her mouse. I wonder how many books Miss Bixby has recommended to Brand. I wondered if they talked about what they read as they steered their carts up and down the aisles of the Kruger, shopping for salsa and shredded wheat. Did he know what brand of shampoo she used or what she fed her cat? If she drank 2% or skim or some of that nasty organic almond stuff? Did he know if Miss Bixby ate frosted or unfrosted Pop-Tarts? These are some of the things I wish I knew. Things I suddenly wish I had time to find out like he did. Brand hisses and points down the hall. Here she comes, out of her gown, but still in her slippers, wearing a pair of navy blue sweatpants, a sweatshirt that says Hofstra on it, and a sly smile that stretches near to her eyeballs. She's sliding across the tiles, much more ninja-like than me, even in her condition. In one hand is the bag of fries. The other hand holds a giant purse. Brand presses the elevator button. Normally, we'd place bets on which one would come up first, but sneaking a cancer patient out of a hospital calls for our full attention. I look over to make sure Nurse Nurse Georgia is still staring at her computer screen and jabbering on the phone. The elevator tings and the doors slide open. Miss Bixby starts pushing us inside, telling us to hurry. I can't believe I'm doing this, she says. Believe it, toots, I say, which is a line from a movie, though I'm not sure what the movie is and I have no idea what toots means. Judge, judging by the severe look on Miss Bixby's, Bixby's face, it's probably not a word I will ever use again. 
Briand presses the L button at least 10 times. Come on, come on, he says. Behind the desk, Nurse Georgia hears his coaxing and frantically frantic pressing and glances up from her computer. She pulls the phone from her ear and cups it, speaking through a frown. Miss Bixby, is that you? Miss Bixby steps behind Steve, even though he is the shortest of us and can't possibly conceal her. Brand jams his thumb into the door button, wait, into the closed door button this time, just holding it there. I think about the scene from Aliens, where they wait for an eternity for the elevator doors to close, and the one guy gets sprayed with acid. Elevators are the worst. Miss Bixby, where are you going? Miss Bixby shrugs. Nurse Georgia stands up. Looks like maybe she's going to leap right over that desk and come after us. A Valkyrie charge. I suddenly wonder if she has the power to call down lightning from the sky. The elevator doors start to close. Miss Miss Bixby, she calls again, voice growing steadily louder. You have a treatment scheduled. And then Nurse Georgia is gone. The elevator drops. The numbers start flashing down. Four to three to two. I start whispering to myself, holding one hand to my ear. Special Agent Wren reporting in. The egg is in the basket. I repeat, the egg is in the basket. You're talking to yourself again, Brand warns me. Behind us, Miss Bixby is studying her reflection in the shiny, smooth wall of the elevator. She runs a bandaged hand along her smooth head. Looks good, Steve tells her. You can tell he's lying. You can always tell when Steve is lying because his eyes wander. Still, I offer him a proud smile. I was the one who taught him that if a girl gets a haircut you're not crazy about, you tell her it looks good anyway. At least I know he listens to me. Preemptive strike, Miss Bixby says. I shaved it before it could fall out on its own. I was, a f- I was getting tired of the pink anyway. I liked the pink, Steve says. I liked it too, but I, it didn't feel, but I didn't feel right saying it. Not now anyway. The doors open again with a ding and we're back in the lobby. I pop my head out and continue whispering. No sign of the first guard. Second guard still in position. Proceed with caution. I look forward. I'm sorry. I look toward the information desk. Anybody have a tranquilizer pistol? It would be so easy. Just stick him right behind the ear and watch him faceplant on that desk. Miss Bixby rolls her eyes and then squeezes past us, reaches behind, and pulling me along by the front of my shirt as she heads for the front door. Come on, boys, she says. Let's blow this popsicle stand. We fall in line like ducklings, eyes straight like we're filing through the halls at Fox Ridge Elementary. I try not to limp. I don't want to call any unnecessary attention to us. A few of the hospital's visitors look in our direction, but just as quickly look away. I assume it's Miss Bixby's new hairdo that does it. It's impolite to stare. We walk past the front desk and the one man standing between us and the exit. I'm positive we are home free when I hear a voice call out. Hey! The guard says. He's holding a phone in one hand. I know who's on the other end of the line. It's Nurse Georgia ratting us out. I'm sure of this. Miss Bixby freezes, and we all nearly tumble into her. And I'm reminded of that one day on the playground when she told us there are no such thing as cooties, the day Rebecca Roundabush almost caught me. Behind me, Steve is dancing in place. Whatever happens, don't search the backpacks, I think. The guard makes a gun with his free fingers and shoots Miss Bixby in the chest. Go pride, he says. Miss B looks down at her Hofstra sweatshirt and the two fierce lions charging across it. Apparently, that's what people who go to Hofstra are called, the pride. Go pride, she echoes, 
pumping the fist, holding the french fries. I turn and give two thumbs up, then grab the tail of Miss Bixby's sweatshirt as she leads us out the door. You know how in the movies, everything comes around full circle and you're back where you started? Like in The Lion King, where it kicks off with a monkey on a giant rock holding a baby lion and ends with the same monkey on the same rock holding another baby lion, and they sing a song that is literally about circles, in case you're a total idiot and miss the point. Or in The Wizard of Oz, where Dorothy wakes up wakes up right back on the farm and realizes it's all been a dream. Or in High School Cheer Team Massacre 7, when the killer passes on his evil ways to his daughter by entrusting her with the family machete after she's cut from the team. Life turns out, sorry, turns out real life isn't like the movies. Life doesn't come all the way back around again. It's not a straight line either. It's angles and curves, shoots off a little, twists and turns, but it never gets right back to the place it started. Not that you would want it to then you wouldn't feel like you'd gotten anywhere. There are spots I'd like to come back to, though. Moments I wish I could capture, like in a snow globe. When I'm feeling down, I could shake it or even smash it open, and there I am, in that time and place. Not a do-over, exactly, just a do-again, like in the movies, where everything usually turns out okay. It's a real park this time, not the little band-aid-sized patch of grass that we had crowded into after snatching the whiskey from George Hazel Flopsucker Nelson, a real park with a swath of trees and a three-tiered fountain and at least one decent-sized hill, not sled-worthy, but certainly big enough to spread a blanket on. Miss Bixby is standing at the foot of the hill, bathed in sunlight, looking a little like a mermaid who's just bargained for a pair of legs and is seeing the surface for the first time, and I wonder how many days she'd been in the hospital. She has the empty McDonald's bag scrunched in one hand, having scarfed down the fries on the walk over. She tried to share them, offering them to us through potato-stuffed cheeks, but we insisted they were all for her. My lucky day, she said finally, and then licked the salt from the tips of her fingers. I remarked that I'd never seen anyone eat a large fries so fast. Some things have a a short shelf life, Miss Bixby said, and that made us all quiet for a while. When we get to the park, we ask her to give us a moment so we can set everything up. We beg her not to look. She says she needs to catch her breath anyway, that the two blocks from the hospital are the most she's walked in three days. She puts a hand on my shoulder to steady herself, and I puff out my chest like that guy in Greek mythology who's got to hold up the whole world. I don't know why. Having her lean against me just made me feel stronger. Halfway up the hill, Brand unzips his pack and sets the bottle of Jack Daniels in the grass. He pulls the blanket free and starts to unfold it. Then he shakes his head. Figures, he says. I look at what he's frowning at. There in the center of the blanket looks to be a fistful of diamonds. Somehow or other, Brand had managed to shatter the wine glass that he had folded inside, probably when he whopped George Nelson over the head with his pack. The glass stem is intact, but the cup part is smashed to pieces. I broke it, he says in disbelief. I can't believe I broke it. The flop sucker's face broke it, I tell him. It was a good swing. Besides, I'm not sure that's the kind of glass you use for this kind of drink. We gingerly pick out what pieces we can, sticking them back in Brand's pack. Then we shake out the blanket just to make sure none of the slices open a butt cheek when we sit. It doesn't take and it doesn't take long to get the rest set up. There is no music to cue. Steve's cell phone battery hasn't spontaneously recharged itself on the walkover, 
and a full symphony orchestra hasn't miraculously appeared by the fountain below us. I fish in my bag for the stack of bent paper plates. Steve slides the dilapidated cardboard box from his backpack and sets it up in the center of the blanket. We don't bother to open it. I think we're all a little afraid of what we might find inside. When we are finished arranging, Steve adjusts and readjusts the placement of everything so that it looks symmetrical. Brand whistles and waves, and Miss Bixby shakes her head as she starts up the hill toward us, moving slowly, hands on her legs, clearly straining with each step. Sorry about the music, Steve mumbles. It's all right, I say. I don't really like Beethoven anyway. But as Miss Bixby slowly trudges up the hill, Steve does the strangest thing, something I don't think I've ever heard him do once in his life. He starts to sing, soft at first, as if he's finding his voice, but then louder with each of Miss Bixby's steps. And as we wind on down the road, our shadows taller than our soul. I can't place the tune, maybe because Steve doesn't have it exactly right, but the lyrics are familiar. I could tell you the name of the song. I couldn't tell you the name of the song or the band, but Miss B obviously recognize it, recognizes it because she laughs as soon as she hears him. Normally, that would be the end of it. Normally, Steve would assume that the laughter was directed at him and he would clam up. But if anything, he just starts to sing louder. And I realize that he's actually got a pretty good voice and that there are still things about him that surprise me. Brand and I look at each other and shrug. But Steve keeps serenading Miss Bixby as she makes her way up the hill. There walks a lady we all know who shines white light and wants to show everything still turns to gold. Show how everything still turns to gold. Miss Bixby reaches the edge of the blanket and Steve suddenly stops. She gives him a round of applause. Not quite the song I would have chosen, she says, but a magnificent performance all the same. Thank you. It was supposed to be classical, Steve says. Instead, it was classic, she says. She scans the blanket, still smiling, until her jaw drops. Is that whiskey? Her voice goes up an octave, one finger pointing at the Jack Daniels, now propped against the bakery box. Steve steps behind me. Bran picks up the bottle and hands it to her. Um, so, yeah, it was supposed to be wine, he starts to explain. Moscato, Steve says over my shoulder, or bruschetta, bruschetta. Brand corrects. That's a kind of cheese, I whisper to him. It's toasted bread, not cheese, Miss Bixby corrects me, taking the bottle of whiskey from Brand and holding it up to the sunlight. And this is definitely not wine. It's better than wine, Steve says, repeating what he had heard, and then instantly glances down at his feet when Miss Bixby stares at him in, in disbelief, or so I'm told. Miss Bixby shakes her head. Please tell me you didn't steal this from your parents. I'm starting to think it would probably be best to just avoid this line of questioning entirely. No sense spoiling the mood. But Steve throws up his hands in protest. No, of course not. We got enough some stranger tofer picked up off the street. Miss Bixby looks even more horrified. No, it's all right, I say. Nobody stole anything. It's fine. We paid for it. Trust me. Please, just don't worry about it. This is your day. She gives me a look, the same look she gave me when I told her that I couldn't do a math worksheet on the grounds that long division was a personal insult to calculators any, everywhere. Then she points to the misshapen white cardboard mess that's no longer even square anymore. That better not be a bottle of rum, she says. We all look at each other uncertainly. When Then Steve clears his throat and warily opens the lid. Ta-da! I say, 
pointing to the lump of dessert smashed nine ways to Sunday, almost unrecognizable as anything edible. I was wrong. Somehow it had actually gotten even uglier. It's, I know where it's from, what it is, she says. It's from, Steve starts to say, I know where it's from. Miss Bixby reaches to the corner of her eye with a taped up hand. It looks a whole lot, it looked a whole lot better when we bought it, I say. Miss Bixby sniffs. It's still beautiful, she says. She clasps the bottle of Jack Daniels to her Hofstra sweatshirt, staring at the remains of Michelle's white chocolate raspberry supreme cheesecake and shakes her head. And I'm not sure what to do. What to say. Probably something deep and wise, like a Bixbyism. I want to say something, but this time Brand beats me to it. He stands beside Miss Bixby and lifts himself to his toes and whispers something in her ear. More than just a word. She drops the bottle into the grass and reaches for Bran's hand, clutching it fiercely in both of hers, nodding over and over and saying, I know. And then she gathers Steve and me with both arms, drawing all three of us in, huddled together, Miss Bixby and us. And I know in that moment that this is as close as we will ever all be again. When she finally lets go, we suck the snot back up and wipe our noses on our sleeves, and I'm reminded of the time Bran tried to pick Steve's nose and how, for a while, Steve couldn't really stand him. But you get used to things, or you learn to get past them, I guess. We sit in a circle on the blanket, surrounding the sorry excuse for a cheesecake. Bran hands out plates, and we use plastic forks and our snotty hands to shovel heaps of soft, raspberry-colored goo into them. It doesn't look appetizing at all, but when I take my first bite, I realize it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what it looks like or what kind of plate you put it on or how you eat it. It doesn't matter whether it's sold by some fancy French pastry chef named Michelle or some hulking Mexican guy named Eduardo. It doesn't matter that it cost a month's allowance or what you said or did to get it or that you never found the right bottle of wine to go with it because the man didn't lie. It really is heaven. We eat in groans and grunts, long drawn out mm, with crumb tumbling from our mouths and raspberry topping on our lips. I finish third, savoring mine a little more than the others, I think, but I don't lick my plate like Bran does. Only Miss Bixby doesn't eat all of hers, saying that maybe the french fries were overkill and that her appetite appetite's not quite what it used to be. I ask her if she wants a drink, nodding to the Mr. Daniels, but she takes the unopened bottle and tucks it behind her, saying she's going to save it for later. Later, she says. She'll probably need it. It's obvious from her look that we're not getting any either. Not that I wanted it. I gather everyone's pink smeared plates and take them to the trash bin at the very top of the hill. And when I get back, I see that Steve has already fished the book I got at Alexander's out of my bag. And Miss Bixby is trying to find the place where we left off. She keeps brushing the sleeve of her sweatshirt against her cheek. I take the spot on the other side of her. Next, Steve, next to me, the four of us scrunched close, even though there are no pictures to look at. Chapter 19, Steve reminds her, page 262, at least in the other copy. Miss Bixby thumbs to her place and coughs once, getting into character. The last stage, she says. And as she reads, I lean up against her. Steve beside me, and I look to see Brand leaning on the other side. And I close my eyes and listen to the sound of Gandalf the Grey admonishing his favorite halfling, of, of cars passing on the street behind us, and the sound of my own heartbeat keeping time to the rhythm of her words, and I totally forget what day it is. 
when she's finished, and it takes a nice long while, and her voice almost gives out more than once, I keep my eyes closed, and we just sit there, the four of us, afraid to break the spell, afraid to say the word that will bring us back from Middle Earth, or wherever it is we've gone to, until finally we hear someone calling Miss Bixby's name, and I open my eyes to see Nurse Georgia, the Viking, standing at the bottom of the hill, telling us that it's time to come down.